0: My friend, thank you so much for downloading this podcast, and it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's truth tool. My truth tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing, if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge and all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-Janet-58. That's 877-Janet-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with org, Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-Janet58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now, please enjoy the program. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open, but thanks so much for being with us and enjoy the broadcast.
1: Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the, time
0: the conference was over, the president wanted to
2: pledge so Americans oh. worshiping government over God. An
0: extremely rare safety move by a nation.
2: 17 years of Palestinians and Israelis negotiating. <laughs> the not.
0: Hello, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. So glad we're going to spend the hour together. And this is going to be one of those hours that's going to challenge us to do something we talk about a lot on this program, and that's to think biblically, but also to think critically. Note to file, they're not mutually exclusive. There is no choice. It's a false, by the way. Uh, cho- a choice to say that it's either faith or reason, but that the two are mutually exclusive. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But somehow, that idea that... Faith and reason are at war with each other, manifests itself most clearly in the supposed war between God and science, that you cannot be a person of faith and be a scientist, that the one necessarily cancels the other out, or that nothing in the world of science points to the fact that there is an intelligent designer, a divine being, a creator out there. In fact, that's anathema to some people in the scientific community. But it isn't for everyone. And one of those people happens to be Dr. Stephen Meyer. And boy, he's got a brand new book out that is absolutely in keeping with Dr. Meyer's style. Brilliant. Dr. Meyer got his Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge in the philosophy of science. He directs the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle, And he's authored the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt, fabulous book. If you have not read it, I had the privilege of talking to Dr. Meyer about it. And Signature in the Cell, uh, the Times Literary Supplement Book of the Year. But his brand new book is called Return, operative word, to the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries that Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Stephen, it's a joy to have you back on the program. Thank you so very much. I've been chomping at the bit waiting to talk to you about this book because I love it and I'm excited about it. But I, I've never, ever, ever asked an author this question because it's too pedantic and too rote and too elementary. But in this case, I think it's purposeful. Who's your target audience for this book?
1: I'm especially interested in the young people who have uh, imbibed the very message that you have uh just described that there is an inherent warfare between reason and faith and between science and faith in particular the polling data that we are uh, that we now have that's coming in from a number of pollsters is documenting a group of young people in the roughly 18 to 30 age group that uh, and the pollsters are calling this group the rise of the nuns the religiously unaffiliated agnostics and atheists and when you probe this group You find uh, the the pollsters are finding and we've found in some polling that we've done that science has played an outsized role in creating disaffection with religious belief, with belief in God, or at least the the claims of the public spokespersons for science, sometimes self-appointed. And yet, as I argue in the book. There is powerful evidence, not only for a designing intelligence of some kind, but instead uh, evidence for designing intelligence that has the attributes that Jews and Christians and Scripture itself has long ascribed to God. So there should be not only is there no necessary conflict between science and faith, uh, our best scientific evidence, as opposed to the scientific proclamations of self-appointed spokespersons, is pointing to God. The evidence is pointing to God. And I think it's time to get that message out.
0: Amen. Thank you, and you do it brilliantly. On that note, by the way, there's some pretty exciting endorsements that you have of the book. So while you've targeted this whole audience that really has been fed this mythology, you've got peers with a boatload of initials after their name who are saying that this is a seminal work. Um, uh, Do you worry, or do you consider, by the way, your peers' opinion if they don't hold the same worldview as you do, that somehow you're continuing to push off theology masquerading as science?
1: Well I actually think that the the ground is shifting in this larger mm. discussion that the the interest in the theory of intelligent design both as far as the evidence that is best explained by intelligent design and as the, the and in the use of the concept of intelligent design to gain fur, to, to guide further research in science, the interest in intelligent design as a research program is growing worldwide It's it 's gaining steam in many mainstream universities and it's it 's going international and we 've been supporting a number of research projects at mainstream research universities with senior scientists who are uh, advancing this concept and using it very fruitfully in science. Um, and I'm seeing that there's a tremendous, uh, that there's an unexpected level of sympathy for the argument of this book among. Uh, scientists, many of whom have uh, you know, en- endowed professorships in different fields of science. I, w- I was kind of blown mm. away by the response that we got to some of the review copies that we sent out. Uh, so in titling the book The Return of the God Hypothesis, I meant to tell a story about what the evidence is now telling us. But I think yes. there's also a shift as far as the sociology of science. More and more scientists are seeing that the materialistic worldview that we inherited from the late 19th century as a result of figures like Darwin, Marx, later Freud, um, this perspective no longer has the explanatory power that it once was thought to have. And we really do need to be thinking about what might lie beyond nature in order to explain what we see in nature.
0: Your answer is reason enough to make sure that our friends not only listen to the entirety of this conversation, but to get a copy of the book as well. So let me go to the title. Return of the God Hypothesis presupposes that there was at one point a God hypothesis. Talk to me about that.
1: Right. The the title invites a story, and so here's the story. In the period of time that science historians call the scientific revolution, uh, science arose in a decidedly Judeo-Christian context. And the historians of science, many historians of science, point out that it did so for specifically Judeo-Christian or biblical reasons. The whole concept of the laws of nature was in fact a theological metaphor, and it implied that there was a divine law giver and a divine law legislator. You may remember from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews describes God as sustaining the universe by the word of his power. The early scientists during this period of the scientific revolution thought that that's what the laws of nature reflected, that God's constant uh, action and and maintenance of the orderly concourse of nature. They also believed that nature was intelligible because nature had been made by a rational creator and the mm-hmm. same rational creator who built law-like order and design and rationality into nature made our minds with rationality so that we could understand it. And that was the basis of the scientific revolution.
0: Yeah was operative word. Then there was a shift. When we come back, I want to pick up on that shift. Who are the promoters of that shift? Why it took place? But again, the good news out of all of this conversation is, as Dr. Stephen Meyer says, there is a return. The idea that the evidence just might be there. We're going to talk more about this brand new book, which I predict will be a bestseller. More after this. God's work in your life has prepared you with a unique message to share and a problem to solve. That truth is why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. God uses you to point to His goodness and to give you meaning and purpose. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877 Janet 58, that's 877 Janet 58, or go to In the Market with Janet partial.org.
3: Religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence.
0: Oh, Richard, you're going to have to read Dr. Stephen Meyer's new book, Return of the God Hypothesis. I have a feeling your expressed opinion right there may be one of the catalysts for why Dr. Meyer wrote this book. Dr. Meyer, again, the New York Times bestselling author, also director uh, of the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute in Seattle. His new book, The Return of the God Hypothesis. Would you respond to Richard Dawkins first, and then I'm going to pick up exactly where we left off before the break
1: absolutely uh, first let me give an historical response one of the key premises of the scientific revolution was that the created order was in fact a creation and the creation uh, had within it orderly processes that were a reflection of the, uh, the 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 its creator being a god of order but in addition the historians of science tell us that part of what got science going was the understanding that the nat- nature was a was contingent upon the will of the creator, that it had an order built into it, but it could have been otherwise. So Newton wrote his famous inverse square law to describe the force of gravitation, but it might have been an inverse cubed law or some other mathematical expression might describe how gravity works. And so in order to find out, because the creation depended on the creator's will, the early scientists said it was important to go and look to investigate, to use an empirical method of investigating nature. Unlike the ancient Greeks who thought that they could discover much by armchair philosophizing, Mm -hmm. Robert Boyle said, it isn't the job of the scientist, the natural philosopher, to ask what God must have done, but instead to go and see what he did do. So the the impulse to empirical investigation actually came from a theological motivation, just the opposite of what Professor Dawkins is saying. And so it still is today. Those of us who are doing research on the design of life use both uh, uh, intelligent design as an explanation for what we see, but also as a guide to further discovery. If life was designed, then it ought to look different than if it were the product of undirected gradual evolutionary processes. And so that leads to certain hypotheses that we can go and test. And in fact, our scientists are doing that. So intelligent design isn't a science stopper. It's a science starter. In fact, the early scientists felt that by looking at the design in nature, they were revealing the glory of God, which is something they very much wanted to do. So there was a theological motivation to study nature.
0: Well, let me linger on this point because I think this is such an important one. So a bunch of Bible verses go roaring through my head when you're speaking. One of them is that the heavens declare the glory of God, the knowable, right? The observable. The other is that God is not the author of confusion. So if you're a subscriber to the concept of randomism, that to me is the working definition of chaos. So it's the antithesis of a designer who you kind of hope and cross with your fingers and toes crossed together that things will work out well, that the planets won't collide, uh, that you won't get uh, four-headed beasts that evolve in whatever bush you're looking at evolutionarily. In other words, the idea here is that the heavens declare the glory and it's revealing, it's God revealing himself, is it not, through what I guess you could call the book of nature, natural theology,
1: right or wrong? Exactly, exactly. Johannes Kepler, the famous German astronomer who discovered the laws of motion as they apply to the the, uh, the solar system, said that uh, that the natural philosopher, which is what people called scientists at the time, has the high calling of thinking God's thoughts after him. And this Mm -hmm. concept or this confidence that there was a hidden rationality embedded in nature that we could understand if we applied our minds and our observation to nature was derived from uh, from biblical theology. God created the universe with a rational order. We can understand that because he built his rationality into us. And so we can understand his thoughts, often expressed mathem- in mathematics. And this is what fascinated the early scientists, that there w- was mathematical harmony in the universe, which to them by itself bespoke a great mind. And no less a scientist than Ar- Albert Einstein th- thought the same thing by the end of his career, that in looking at the, what we call these laws of physics, with their, their extraordinary mathematical symmetries, yes. that uh, we're looking at evidence of mind in nature.
0: All right, so if we, unlike the Greek philosophers, if the uh, those scientists that you reference, and there's so much more that you talk about in your book as well, simply read that book of nature, and they said that there's something here that indicates that God is real. So they start with the presupposition that he is real and that the evidence further substantiates that. But there is, in fact, a shift. And then that idea gets replaced, and here is where the science and God are at war with one another begins to emerge. Who are the key players here, and why do you think this happened?
1: Yeah, this occurs throughout the 19th century and especially near the end of the 19th century. Charles Darwin is, of course, a huge player in this because his theory of evolution by natural selection purports to provide a purely naturalistic mechanism that can account for the origin of new living forms. Natural selection and random variation were conceived in his mind as a kind of designer substitute. It was an undirected, unguided process that could produce the appearance of design without being guided or directed in any way. So it had the powers to mimic intelligence without being intelligent. And that that formed part of a larger narrative that was advanced by other materialistically-minded scientists who were explaining the origin of the solar system, the origin of the geological features, and extending Darwin's ideas about the origin of new forms of life to explain even the origin of the very first life. And later, Darwin Um, extended the idea to explain the origin of human life. So by the end of the 19th century, you had this kind of seamless story that could be told about how all the most important things had arisen, our solar system, our planet, and especially the life forms on our planet as the result of purely undirected natural processes. And that gave rise not just to a, a new theory of where everything came from, but a kind of larger comprehensive worldview known as scientific materialism. Add to that mix Marx's ideas about where the human race was going in the future, a materialistic idea called dialectical materialism, a kind of utopian vision of the future, and Freud's ideas about what to do about human guilt. And between these three thinkers and the other scientists that were involved, Darwin, Marx, and Freud, uh, scientific materialism answered all the fundamental worldview questions that Judeo-Christian theology had always answered. Where did we come from? where are we going, and what to do about the human condition, especially our guilt. So that kind of replaced the theistic framework for science by the end of the 19th century.
0: Absolutely fascinating. By the way, Dr. Stephen Meyer is doing a brilliant job of giving you the 35,000-foot flyover. His book, as all of his books are, filled with footnote after footnote, graphs, charts, uh, evidence so that uh, the common man can read it and understand, but people who relish uh, work in the scientific community will also see that there is a preponder- I'll use a legal standard here a preponderance of evidence in the book for the return of the God hypothesis. More with Dr. Myerite right for this.
3: Speaking of creationism and the religion from which it, it stems. Uh, Michelle Hot-Gerrity left you this question uh, on our Facebook page. She says, do you believe in God? How do you answer that question?
1: Uh, No, I mean, but as we say, you can't know. So it's strictly if you you have to reckon and you have to put Bill in a category, I'm an agnostic. You can't know. The idea that there's a plan for everybody and um, this deity... Has this all worked out and is really directing things is an extraordinary claim
2: that I find troublesome.
0: Hmm. So says Bill Nye, the science guy, Dr. Stephen Meyer is with us, director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. He's an award winning author, New York Times bestseller. His newest book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. Subtitle really gives you a hint of what this great book's all about. It provides compelling scientific evidence for the existence of God. And by the way, there are three scientific discoveries and we'll touch on those later, but this really is moving this argument forward. Stephen, if I may, I got to go back to Bill Nye because I'm not looking at this through a scientific grid. I'm kind of looking at this more through a, a courtroom. So, the burden of proof is on Bill Knights, not on me. He would have to disprove the existence of God. So he says there's no evidence there. I would turn around the question to him and I would say, "Well, provide your evidence that God doesn't exist. In other words, go ahead, kill God, like your Pierre Nietzsche, go ahead and tell us that God is dead, but the burden of proof falls on you, not on me.
1: Uh, that's a, a, an interesting approach to take. There was a famous debate between Alvin Plantinga and, um, Uh, Anthony Flew, when Anthony Flew was still an atheist, and Flew argued that there was a presumption of atheism. And Plantinga says, there's no presumption of atheism. (laughs) Let's play on a level playing field here. We've got two competing metaphysical hypotheses. Let's see which one best explains the evidence. And there's a wonderful quote from Richard Dawkins, which I employ in the book uh, as a a framing device, Mm -hmm. where Dawkins says that the universe has exactly the properties we should expect. If at bottom, there is no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I love this quote because it implies that you can test metaphysical hypotheses or what we call worldviews in much the same way we test scientific hypotheses, by looking at the world around us to see if what's in the world matches what we would expect if a given hypothesis were true. Dawkins wants to say that the, what we see in the properties of the universe in life are exactly what we'd expect if materialism were true, if all that really exists is blind, pitiless processes, p- pitiless indifference, no design. But I argue in the book what we see is in fact exactly what we would expect if theism were true, and it's not at all what we would expect on a materialistic worldview. The universe had a definite beginning. The materialists have long said that the universe should be eternal and therefore self-existent and not require an external creator. The universe has been finely tuned to allow for the possibility of life against all odds. This is a tremendously puzzling discovery from a materialistic standpoint. And the universe has revealed, or rather life has revealed, that at the foundation of even the simplest living cells, we find complex uh, information processing systems run by, by effectively digital code encoded in the molecule DNA and other molecules like it. These are not discoveries that would have been expected to have occurred as a result of blind, pitiless indifference.
0: Couldn't agree more. So let me appeal to you as a man who got his PhD in the philosophy of science. So, so many of these questions, it seems that their root are not scientific, but they are much more philosophical. I would argue even that they're even more theological. So life is more than just matter. In fact, if I were subscribing to a materialistic worldview— it's nihilistic in many respects because what is the meaning of all of this? It's just happenstance. It's just random. There has to be a purpose. There has to be a meaning. And and there are things that cannot be proven scientifically. Show me what love looks like in a laboratory. Um and what do I do about the idea that significance is not found because of my DNA helix, but because of who I am and my relationship with a personal, knowable God? So there is this constant blending together. Blaise Pascal said it. He said science starts, on, religion starts on the frontier of science. So he understood the interconnectedness between theology and science as well. You use the word worldview in a case like Richard Dawkins or Bill Nye. Do they start And the worldview, as you've defined, Stephen, is that grid through which we view reality. Do they start with the presupposition that God does not exist and therefore they build their case accordingly? Or are they blindly following the evidence to see where it leads?
1: I think there is an implicit worldview commitment in many of the spokespersons for science that have... Promulgated this myth of a of warfare between science and Christianity, or between science and theistic belief generally, and uh, many of the the new atheists say that they they uh, despise or have contempt for philosophy, but they do philosophy, and they do it very badly. They, they presuppose an atheistic or materialistic worldview, then they're blind to the way their own presuppositions present, prevent them from even considering the evidence for design that we see in the universe and in life. In fact, there's a, a methodological assumption that scientists, uh, many scientists regard as normative, and that is the assumption called methodological naturalism, which says if you're going to be right. a scientist, you're gonna explain, explain everything by reference to strictly materialistic causes including even things like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and the nature of human consciousness. Well, if you start from a materialistic premise like that, and you are uh, committed to explaining everything by reference to purely materialistic processes, then you shouldn't be surprised that you don't find any evidence of design because you've been blinded to the evidence by the assumptions that you've applied to your inquiry from the outset.
0: Exactly, it's helped There, oh, you put the blunders on yourself in some respects. Boy, this hour is going far too quickly. The book is absolutely brilliant, and I'm so glad that I started the hour by asking Dr. Meyer who his target audience was in a world where. Um, you're supposed to at least in academia sift and weigh and vet the facts back and forth, question and examine. I'm so glad that this is being infused into the conversation now, but I don't want it to be relegated just to college campuses. You and I are told to go out into that marketplace of ideas. So is it true that science and religion are at war? Is God at war with science? Or do the heavens in fact declare his glory? That's why in his book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, Dr. Meyer talks about three very important scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. We'll talk about those when we return. Our team of partial partners is growing, and I love communicating behind the scenes with this special group of friends who are devoted to giving a monthly gift to In the Market. Our partial partners receive private emails direct from me on issues we don't address on radio, and I even send a weekly audio message straight from my heart to yours. Ready to become a partial partner? Call 877-Janet-58, janet 58 or go to In the Market with Janet Partial dot
3: I suspect the most compelling evidence would either be the evidence from geographical distribution. The detective finds that the distribution of animals and plants over the islands and continents of the world is exactly what you'd expect. If you think about how the animals and plants should be distributed if God had put them there, there seems no obvious reason why God would have deliberately put animals and plants on islands and continents in such a way as to make it look as though they'd evolved.
0: Richard Dawkins, we are talking with Dr. Stephen Meyer, who is the director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. He got his PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. He's a former geophysicist and college professor. He's authored the New York Times best-selling Darwin's Doubt, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life, and The Case for Intelligent Design, as well as Signature in the Cell. Both fabulous. DNA and the Evidence for Intelligent Design. By the way, that was named Book of the Year by the London Times Literary Supplement. His newest book is called The Return, note the hope in that, The Return of the God Hypothesis. And then underneath that, you realize that there are three scientific discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe. And that's where I want to go to next. First of all, I I would be remiss not to just let that comment by Dawkins be responded to. So I'm not quite sure the point he's trying to make. um, There's something called migration. I don't know. Maybe animals moved. But uh, what is he saying that somehow this denies the existence of God because of where certain plants showed up and animals showed up on certain continents?
1: Well, it's one of the five main arguments for Darwin's theory of universal common descent. It's called biogeographical distribution. In another book that I've uh, co-authored with several uh, biologists and uh, other philosophers of science, a a biology textbook called Explore Evolution, examining the arguments for and against neo-Darwinism, we show that biogeographical distribution is a real phenomenon. And it is completely consistent with the idea of microevolution, small-scale variations among uh, Galapagos mockingbirds or things like that. But it, it really isn't a, a powerful argument for universal common ancestry, or still less the idea that mutation and natural selection have the creative power that have long been attributed to them by um, by Darwinian biologists. In fact. The creative power of the mutation selection mechanism is now being doubted or uh, by leading evolutionary biologists. In 2016, I attended a meeting at the Royal Society of London that was uh, convened by a group of evolutionary biologists who are calling for a new theory of evolution because they recognize that mutation and selection have very limited creative power. One of the key things that has to be explained in biology is the origin of new biological information, information that's functioning much like digital code in the computer program. We know that if you randomly change zeros and ones in a computer program you're going to degrade the function of that program long before you produce a new program or operating system the same thing turns out to be true in life the digital code that's stored in the DNA molecule when mutated is uh, going to degrade over time that's not a that's not an effective mechanism of creation it's a mechanism mm-hmm. of degradation so mm. there are really significant fundamental problems with uh, contemporary neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, Dawkins is nibbling around the edges talking about an evidence that's equivocal that can be explained in many different ways. It's not decisive for the neo-Darwinian evolution. It certainly doesn't refute the existence of God.
0: Yes. Well said. Thank you for that. Let me go to the subtitle of your book, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And the first one is that the universe has a beginning. Now, on its face, that might not be stunning to anyone, because I think that's presumed by everybody, that there has to be a beginning. And I think whether people acknowledge how it will end, whether with a bang or a whimper, if I can borrow from the poet, (laughs) that it will in fact end. But it's how it began that becomes the question. You call these three scientific discoveries. How is there something new that we now know about how the, the universe began? Uh, is there an amalgamation between the Big Bang theory and an idea of an intelligent design? Are those two mutually exclusive? Where are we as we witness what you are calling the return of the God hypothesis?
1: Right. Let's put this in a larger worldview context. Um, every worldview has to posit something as the thing from which everything else came, the thing or the process from which everything else came. Scientific materialism, the worldview that denies the existence of God, posits that matter and energy are the things from which everything else came, and that they have existed eternally, that they were they are the self-existent things that later arranged themselves and evolved to produce all the complex things we see around us today. But but matter and energy play the role of God in a materialistic worldview, the worldview that's held by Richard Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss and others. Now, uh, so consequently scientific materialists long held that the universe was eternal and self-existent the material universe of matter space time and energy had always been here and the stunning discovery of modern 20th century cosmology was that the universe has not always been here that there was a a definite beginning point a, a finite time ago when the universe began to expand from effectively a zero point and we now have multiple lines of evidence supporting that conclusion. They started to, The first indicators of that started to come in in the 1920s when the astronomers were discovering that the galaxies were moving away from us and that the light coming from those galaxies gave an indication of that because the wavelengths of the light was stretched out, the kind of so-called Doppler effect. Um, but all there have also been other developments in observational astronomy and physics such as the discovery of what's called the cosmic background radiation and then developments in theoretical physics suggesting that the universe had a definite beginning not only in time but also p- possibly even space that the universe came out of what's called a singularity at the beginning and this was a, a consequence first of albert einstein's theory of general relativity and then the application of that theory to analyzing the origin of the universe that was First performed by uh, Georges Lamatre, a a Belgian priest and physicist, and then later analysis of the use of general relativity to analyze what the universe would have been like in its earliest uh, state that was done by Stephen Hawking and other physicists, Roger Penrose and George Ellis.
0: Stephen, I want to go back to something you said when you started your answer, which was the idea that there is held by some a belief that matter was always there. How does one believe in the eternality of atoms, but not the eternality of a divine being?
1: Well, it's kind of a choice philosophically. What do you think is a more likely candidate to be the thing from which everything else came or the entity from which everything else came? Uh, people who do worldview studies call that the prime reality, or in mm-hmm. philosophy, it's called uh, the study of ontology, the, the 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 ultimate reality, the foundation of all being. And there, there's been an historic divide in Western philosophy between those who are materialists, who thought that matter and energy were the things from which everything else came, and people who were idealists or theists who thought that there was a pre-existing mind. The new cosmology showing that matter and energy themselves come into existence a finite time ago suggests that materialism is not an adequate um, worldview explanation because prior to the origin of matter, there was no matter and energy there to do the causing, if you will. Uh, You can't explain the origin of matter from prior matter because it's matter itself that comes into existence. So the, the new cosmology suggests the need for a transcendent cause, a cause that is separate from matter, space, time, and energy, that also is independent, that exists independently of our time and space, and in addition has great power. The worldviews of theism and deism posit the existence of an entity separate from the universe that fits that bill, Materialism does not, and so a God hypothesis provides a better explanation for the origin of the universe than the scientific materialism that's been affirmed by people, for example, like Neil Tyson DeGrasse, who has reprised the famous mantra of Carl Sagan in the Cosmos series, The universe is all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. No, the universe has not always been here. It's not the only thing. It's contingent on something else. It requires an external creator for explanation. And the new cosmology underscores that conclusion.
0: Yes, absolutely. What's the intersection between the God hypothesis and the multiverse hypothesis?
1: Well, in addition to evidence that the universe had a beginning, we also have evidence that the basic parameters of physics were set from the very beginning of the universe. One of those parameters is actually the force that drives the expansion of the universe that we actually can detect today. The universe is still expanding and expanding outward. But that force had to be very finely tuned, and it must fall within very narrow tolerances. It can't be too strong or too weak, or else we'd either get what's called a heat death or a big crunch, and mm. the degree of precision associated with just that one fine-tuning parameter is astronomically precise. It's one part in 10 to the 90th power is the is the probability of getting that fine-tuning right. There are only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe, so this is an exquisite degree of fine-tuning, and this is just one of many parameters like this. The multiverse hypothesis comes in as an attempt to explain the the huge improbability of the Uh, the the fine-tuning, apart from a designing intelligence. Many physicists have seen that the fine-tuning seems to point most uh, naturally to a fine-tuner. But the multiverse hypothesis says, no, there's a a billion other universes out there. That's not an actual number, but you get the idea. There's, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, 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 so many universes... That the, that the probability of getting some universe with the right combination would have had to, if there's enough universes out there, some universes universe with the right combination of parameters must have arisen someplace, and we just happen to be in that lucky universe. So that's the multiverse hypothesis. There's a, there's a critique of that that I present in the book, which I can share as well, but I don't know if we have enough time but between now and the next break.
0: We're coming right up to that break. So let me just point out that the first scientific discovery that we talked about was the universe has a beginning. You just touched on part of the second one, which is the universe has been finally tuned for the possibility of life. I want to come back to that third scientific discovery when we return. Absolutely brilliant book. Day, It's a book for the ages now. It is called... Uh, excuse me, it's called The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Dr. Stephen Meyer is the author. Again, he is the director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture and a New York Times bestselling author. Back after this.
2: Class of logical arguments uh, that uh, I have not had much to do with personally, but which I, I find pretty compelling, and and that is uh, certain arguments that make the whole concept of God logically incoherent. For example, there is the argument uh, from evil that uh, theists have struggled with for centuries and never really. Come to a solution to. Every, uh, uh, most of the religions that we talk about uh, believe in an, uh, a God who is, has, has what I call the three O's mm-hmm. omnibenevolence, omnib- omniscience, and omnipotence. And there's no way you can make all three of those compatible with the undeniable existence of gratuitous suffering in the world. Now, there's going to have to be some suffering. Uh, we have to feel pain if we're going to recognize when we're ill and so on, but there has to be some of that. But the amount is so huge that you can't justify it unless you relax one of those. You could relax omnipotence, uh, you could relax uh, omnibenevolence, and just say, well, God isn't that good after all. But then that's not the God most people believe in.
0: That's Victor Stenger. He was a physicist, by the way. He was a religious skeptic. He died in 2014. And now the God question has been answered in his life. We are visiting with Dr. Stephen Meyer, who got his PhD from the University of Cambridge in the philosophy of science. He directs the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute in Seattle. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And his latest book is called Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. I want to get to that third discovery in just a bit. But let me, if I can, just pick up on Victor's comment, uh, Stephen, because the concept of evil is not a scientific question. So and by the way, this whole idea of suffering, I found very often would weave its way through the writings and the conversations of Christopher Hitchens and many, by the way, Pete Singer talks about this and and uh, Michael Shermer in his walking away from faith. So this idea of suffering has become a stumbling block. Now, of course, the whole time he's talking, I'm screening, but you don't understand the concept of sin. OK, that's not, again, a scientific issue. Um, it's a theological one. Talk to me about this.
1: Well, right. Victor Stenger wrote a book uh, titled God, the Failed Hypothesis, and uh, you get the sense from the title that he's going to be marshalling primarily scientific arguments against the existence of God. But in that clip, it shows that one of his primary considerations is the so-called problem of evil. Um, I don't agree with him that that has been left um, unanswered by theologians and philosophers. Um, From Augustine to Alvin Plantinga, I think Mm -hmm. the articulation of what's called the free will defense has provided a very compelling explanation for why God could be both good and there could be evil in the world, having made uh, agents who are capable of of free choices that may or may not uh, conform to his will, but a God feeling that, uh, or thinking that it was better to make such agents than puppets, allowed for a universe that might uh, have agents in it with that rebelled against him, even though he, in the Christian view, had a plan for overcoming that. So. Um, these are not questions that have been left unaddressed by theologians and philosophers. People can judge for themselves whether they're adequate. The answers have been adequate. I find them adequate. And uh, I just, yeah. so uh, Stenger's objections, uh, I, I think that's an interesting clip you play because the pretension is that, that it's science that has undermined belief in God. But in fact, in many cases, as you point out, it's other sort of considerations driving his the rejection of belief in God.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Let me go to that third discovery and you say there have been huge bursts of information into a biosphere. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, right. Um, The third big discovery has occurred in the realm of biology, especially in the field of molecular biology. In 1953, Watson and Crick elucidated the structure of the famed double helix molecule. They thought at the time it had something important to do with hereditary, the transmission of hereditary information. It does indeed. Um, But in 1957, Crick, who who was a code breaker in, in World War II, broke the ultimate code. He posited something called the sequence hypothesis, which was later confirmed. And that was the idea that this chemical subunits running along the interior of the DNA molecule, along its famous double helix structure, that these chemical subunits are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or digital characters, the zeros and ones that we use in software today, which is to say it's not the physical properties of these chemical subunits of the DNA molecule that give the DNA its function. Rather, it's the arrangement of those characters in accord with an independent symbol convention, later discovered and now known as the genetic code, that allow the information in DNA, that allows the, the subunits, the chemicals in DNA, to function like alphabetic characters and to convey information within the cell for building the proteins and protein machines that keep cells alive. It's an extraordinary discovery. A world of information, informational nanotechnology has been revealed by modern molecular biology Bill Gates, our local hero here in the Seattle area, says that DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Leading uh, biotech uh, uh, scientist, Leroy Hood, says that DNA simply contains digital code. Even Richard Dawkins acknowledges that it's full of machine code. Where does such code come from in our experience? Where uh, it takes a programmer to generate a program. And indeed, whenever we find information, And we trace Mm -hmm. it back to its source. We always come to a mind, not a material process. Whether we're talking about a computer program or a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or the information that you and I are transmitting over a radio signal, information has its ultimate source in mind. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life is a powerful indicator of a designing intelligence acting in the origin and history of life.
0: Wow, what a brilliant answer. It's why you say that the DNA helix alone indicates that there has to be a master programmer. It's exactly what you were just saying.
1: Absolutely. And then when you combine that piece of evidence with the evidence we have of design from the very beginning of the universe in the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics, those basic physical parameters of the universe, and the evidence we have that the universe had a definite beginning, uh, no space alien could explain all this. No space alien could account for the origin of the universe or the fine-tuning of the universe upon which its very existence depends, and yet uh, No less a person than Francis Crick himself proposed that because the problem of explaining the origin of life on Earth was so difficult. Even Richard Dawkins floated that idea. So I think that shows the desperation of the scientific materialists and shows that the properties of the universe are not what you'd expect from a materialistic point of view. Instead, they declare the glory of God. They are pointing in a very different direction. These are things you'd expect given the God of theism, and therefore I call that the return of the God hypothesis.
0: Stephen, there's no question that God is using you in a powerful way. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the circles in which you're moving and the influence that you're bringing to bear in these conversations. I thank you for your concern for an up-and-coming generation who has been given a lie that God and science have been at war when, in fact, anything but that is true. There's such harmony and order and purpose. The heavens do, in fact, declare the glory of God It is an absolutely fabulous book. I expect to see it again as a New York Times bestseller, Return of the God Hypothesis, brand new book by Dr. Stephen Meyer. Get a copy. It's worth the read. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.